What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness may be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Hi, my name's Tim. It's great to be with you uh, this afternoon. You'll find an outline of where we're going on the uh, handout that was given to you on the right-hand side, and we'll be referring to that text from uh, that book of the Bible called Romans that's printed on the left-hand side. Now, let me just get set up. But while I'm just getting this working, um, what if you just talk to the person next to you and ask each other the question, what do you think faith is? What is faith? Oh, it's okay. I just said, you're just going to do 
Yeah, last time it was only one screen that was working. Yeah. Chris' laptop? Yeah. Hey, you might want to watch this for a minute. See the rest of the movie. Yeah, it's a good movie, isn't it? Yeah, you may or may not be an Indiana Jones fan, but it, it, it is a good movie, and it illustrates something about faith. Um, Indiana Jones is a scientist, and because he's a scientist, he needs evidence normally. But he's in this, backed into this corner, into taking a, a leap of faith, almost against his better judgment. But is that good theology? Might make good movies. Is it actually true to what God thinks about faith and what faith is? I think the word faith is confusing. I don't know what happened in your conversations. This is how I often hear people use language. If I'm certain of something, I say, I know. I know I'm here today. If something's probable, I tend to say, I believe. I believe the Eagles can win this weekend. Or not. But if it's improbable, then the, the language of faith comes in. Uh, I have faith. It's, a, it's this irrational leap of faith. It's believing something, as a schoolboy said, it's believing something that you know isn't true, like believing in fairies or Santa Claus or spaghetti monsters. Now, faith is central to Christianity. It's different to other religions and uh, other beliefs. In Buddhism, it's enlightenment. In Islam, it's submission. But in Christianity... The language of the Bible is that we live by faith. And therefore, understanding faith is crucial if you want to understand Christianity, and especially if you're interested in being a Christian. But even more essential than understanding faith, doing it is more. Having faith, not just understanding it. But when you hear me say, you must have faith, I wonder what you hear. 
Do you hear me saying to you, you must suspend rational thought? Or do you ask questions like, okay, if I've got to have faith, where do I get it? Am I supposed to be like Indiana Jones? I just close my eyes and somehow faith just sort of summons up from within me somewhere. Or if I've got to have faith, how much do I need? Do I need sort of 50% or is 10% enough or do I need 100%? What do I do with my doubts? Well, when we come to Romans chapter 4, part of this letter that Paul, a first century Christian leader, wrote to Christians in Rome, the centre of the known universe at that stage, the Roman Empire, he discusses this idea of faith in this chapter we're looking at. If you've been with us uh, the last few weeks, we've seen that God has put a new deal on the table. I provocatively summarised that last week by saying, the new deal of God is good people go to hell, it's only bad people who go to heaven. Now, it's meant to be provocative, but there actually is more than a grain of truth in it. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, Paul's been building an argument. He begins with all of us. Universally, he looks around the world and at himself and he says, all of us suppress the truth about God, our creator. We refuse to honour him as God because we want to be God. We want to determine our own lives. And so we engage in this rebellion, this autonomy. And having high moral standards is no help because we all break our moral standards. Having religion doesn't help because we don't do what our religion demands, whatever it might be. And that's the old deal. We get what we deserve. We ignore God and God says, in the end, I'll ignore you. I'll banish you from my world and all the pleasures of it and all the gifts that come from my hand. Which is what we want, isn't it, if we don't want God. But God's new deal is a total reversal It's a whole new deal because God is rich in mercy. That's the language of the Bible. And he sent his own son to die for us. That is, God provided a solution to the problem. We didn't. He did. Jesus, the son of God, came and died in our place. He took the death, the punishment that we deserve to atone for our evil. Good people go to hell, only bad people go to heaven. That's right. Those who think they're good who ignore what God has done, who think they've got the solution, it doesn't work. It will never work. It's only people who admit that they're bad, who recognise that God has offered a new deal, has offered pardon, paid for completely by Jesus, and who receive it by faith. Only those people are accepted by God and welcomed by him into eternal life. That's the new deal. Now, if that's the new deal... Romans 4 discusses how that actually works in practice. And particularly he raises the question of a guy called Abraham. Verse 1 says, what shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, that is Jewish forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter about God's deal? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, he had something to boast about but not before God. But what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Judaism, Islam, look back to Abraham as the key figure. He lived about 2000 BC, so 4000 years ago, and he lived before Jesus, before the New Deal, in a sense, became reality. The great granddaddy of the Jewish nation. And Paul says this verse 3 here, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, is the key to understanding the deal that Abraham was on with God. Abraham believed God, that is, God had just made Abraham some incredible promises. And what did Abraham do? Well, he simply took God at his word. He said, God, if you make the promise, I'll believe you. And God says, that's enough for me. 
and credited to him as righteousness. That is, from then on, God treated Abraham as righteous, as if he'd never mucked up, never done evil. At that moment, from that moment on, despite all that Abraham had been, despite all his doubts and sins, he was accepted by God as righteous. And he uses a language from accounting. Uh, some of you are accountants, aren't you? You might never write things down these days. You just use spreadsheets. But you can imagine your ledger. And there's all these entries on your ledger. And they're all negative. They're all in red. They've all got a, a, a minus sign in front of them. And what does God do? It's like God rules a line under that whole ledger and deletes everything above the line, everything in red, and says, you're righteous. You have no more debt whatsoever. And he makes sure that the, 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 the file is now secured. It can't be tampered with. No more entries can be made. No more negative uh, entries in red can be put on your ledger. Now, we call that in relationships forgiveness, don't we? You've got a debt to somebody because of what you've done. If they cancel the debt, if they write off the ledger, then it's forgiveness. And you're counted with them as righteous. And that's what this is describing. Abraham believed God and God credited it to him, accounted it to him as righteousness. Now, I think for many of us that doesn't sit very easily. Firstly, it feels too good to be true that God would just do that. God would just look at us and all the things that I might have on my conscience, all the things I know about in me and you as well, and God just say, it doesn't matter. Too good to be true? Where's the fine print? And it runs counter to almost everything we've learnt about how life works, doesn't it? And how did you get to this university? Did somebody just discount all your failures, all your lack of 100% and get you into this university? No, you had to do exams, didn't you? And you had to reach certain standards. Uh, and uh, that's, that's how almost all of life works. How, how do you get approval at home from your parents or siblings? It's by what you do, isn't it? You know that if you do, do it wrong, then there are consequences for that. And that idea that we need to earn whatever we get in life is so deeply ingrained. When God comes along with a different deal, we sort of balk at it. We, we can't believe that it could be true. And I think for those of us who take God seriously, the normal way of coping with that is sort of combining it. So if you think about if this is us and God, there's this gulf between us because of what we've done. But we might try and combine what God does with what we do. We think... Yes, Jesus came and died for me, and that, that's terrific. That's, that, that's great. I'm so grateful, but that's not quite enough, is it? I, I need to add to that. I need to cross the last bit of the divide by what I do myself. As some people say, God helps those who help themselves. And there are lots of examples of this. Some denominations formally teach that we're saved by grace and our good works. Well, the other way people think about it, I think, is we need to earn God's forgiveness. We need to do enough so that we, we, we prove to God that we're serious, we're, we're genuine. And then when we've done enough, God will forgive us. We contribute towards forgiveness. But what this deal is, what Paul is saying in Romans 3 and 4, is more like that. What God has done bridges the whole gap. Now, to be convinced of this, I think, Paul wants, you take, wants to take you back into some background, some history of Abram. Now you may be completely uninterested in Abram and Abraham, but let me take you through it because I think it'll help you and help you understand faith and how this whole deal works. 
But on your outline there, you can see uh, three boxes that give us the background. We're back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, God appears to this guy, Abram, out of the blue. Abram worships idols. Abram has not been anything like a perfect person. He's, he's a pagan. And God just comes to Abram and makes some incredible promises to him. Promises like this. Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I'll show you, the land I'm going to give you. And I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. And in the end, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And in response to that promise, Abram does uproot and starts to travel around. His actions are mixed. Sometimes he he seems to get it right. Many times he, he gets it wrong. In Genesis 15, three chapters later, 10 or 15 years later in Abram's life, God comes and speaks to him again. He's just saved Abram's life. And after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your great reward. And Abram says, God, you promised to give me a family. I've still got no kids. What's going on? Um, And God says to him in verse 4, this man, Eliezer, won't be your heir. He's a distant cousin. But a son coming from your own body, you will have a son of your own. He'll be your heir. That is, I'll keep my promise that you'll be the father of many nations through your own son. And he took Abram outside and said, look up at the stars of the sky. It must have been one of those nights where the moon wasn't there. You could just see countless stars. And he said, count the stars if indeed you can. Then he said, that's how many offspring you'll have. And Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. At that point, Abram's standing with God, his relationship with God is turned upside down. He's righteous with God Not because he's earned it, just because he's trusted the promise of God. And then about 30 years later, 20 to 30 years later, in Genesis 17. I haven't got a slide for that. In Genesis 17, uh, the story is quite a long one. But in Genesis 17, God comes to Abram again. And he promises again that he'll be the father of many nations. He tells him he will have a son soon, Isaac, who is born about a year later. And he commands Abram and his family, at least all the boys, men in the family, to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant, the promise that God has pledged to Abram. Now, keep that in mind as we move forward. But there's a little bit of language stuff we need to do. English is different to the language the Bible was written in, Hebrew and Greek mainly. And in both those languages, there's a verb that we translate believe. I believe. That's something you do, isn't it? It's active. You know what a verb is, engineers. Um, But there's also a noun, which is in the original language the same word, just a different form of it. But in English, we don't have a noun for belief. I've got a belief, we sort of can say. Um, But the noun in Greek and Hebrew is is the word faith. And so throughout this passage, you'll see, example in verse 3, Abram believed God and was credited as righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about faith. Well, in the original languages, it's the same word. It gets confusing for us because it moves in English. So as we read this chapter and, and think it through, just keep that in mind. Faith, belief are talking about exactly the same thing. Um, and faith has this sense, the noun, of relying, trusting on. Because when you believe somebody's promise, you trust them. You rely on the promise. You depend on them. That's the language we're using. And in verse 4, Paul picks up this language of credited. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. 
And most of you experience that, don't you? If you've got a part-time job, what happens? You go and do your work, and when uh, your bank account goes up by $300 or something, what do you say? There's my wages, isn't it? So something is credited to you because you've worked, well, you earned it. Uh, And if they don't pay you, what are you going to do? Well, you've got the right to sue them, don't you? Because they owe it to you. It's an obligation to give it to you. So that's one side. But there's a whole different way that something can be credited to you. So imagine you go online and check your bank account and you suddenly find that there's $300 there that wasn't there before. There's been this credit to your account. And I presume the first thing you think is, did somebody owe me money? Did I work last week? Is this my pay packet? But what if it isn't? What if it just appears? What if it's just credited to you when you haven't earned it? When nobody owes it to you? Well, that's what he describes in verse 5. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. See, here he's talking not about wages, but about a gift. And a gift is entirely different, isn't it? Well, a proper gift is. Sometimes we get confused because we use you know, gifts at Christmas time. As Santa Claus gives gifts. Who does he give gifts to? Well, and he gives gifts to good boys and girls, doesn't he? As if somehow you earn that gift. Or sometimes when you're thinking about what will I give Aunt Mary, you think, what did she give me last year? Hankies? Okay, I'll buy her some kitchen sponges. That's about the same price, isn't it? That's, that's what she deserves if, if she gave me hankies last year. That's not a gift. That's obligation. That's just paying back what you owe them, isn't it? But a real gift, a real gift is when it just comes. There's an extra $300 in your bank account. And you think, where did that come from? And you realise your mum or your auntie or someone just put it there. It was just a pure gift. It's grace. It's generosity. And if they don't give it to you, you can't take them to court, can you, and sue them as if they owe it to you. Not at all. And do you see what he's saying? He's saying these are the two offers we've been talking about. One is work, wages, obligation. The other is gift, grace, that responds with faith. And those things are mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. It's either wages or a gift. You either earn it or you didn't earn it. And you simply trusted God who justifies the ungodly. Not the godly, but the ungodly. Not the good, not those who try hard, but those who haven't tried. And those are mutually exclusive. It's either or. You can't mix them. You either try to earn it, or you decide you can't earn it. You won't earn it. And instead, you just trust God who gives it to you. You don't try at all. See, the way he's talking here, faith is not a work. Faith is not something that I do that somehow earns me the grace of God, earns me forgiveness. Faith is actually saying, I deserve nothing. From my earning, from what I've done, I'll get nothing. Therefore, I stop trusting me. Instead, I grab hold of the only thing that might help me. That is the generosity of God. So you can realise that you need forgiveness from God. But it's what you do next that's critical. You can't say, well, I need forgiveness from God. What I need to do is somehow turn over a new leaf, start a new life, get better than I have been and earn the forgiveness of God. Or you can simply trust God to give it to you as a gift you haven't earned. A righteousness, a forgiveness that's not yours because you've earned it. It just comes as a present from God. You see the two sides, the two options? 
And these verses, verses 4 and 5, I think are as clear as you can get to explaining the difference between the old deal and the new deal. You either earn it or it's a gift. And Abraham proves it's a gift. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, quoted in verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He just suddenly had this deposit in his bank account. He didn't earn it. It was just put there by God simply because he trusted the promise of God. Nothing more. And then he calls on another witness in verse 6 and 7 and 8, King David. David came about a, a thousand years after Abraham, so about a thousand BC, was king of Israel. And this is what he said, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The word here for blessed uh, isn't blessed by God as if God has done something to them. It, it, it's the idea of the person that you'd love to swap shoes with. It, that some, you know, maybe they've won lotto. Maybe they're the coolest guy in the whole team. you just love to be in their shoes. That, that's what this word means. The person you'd give up anything for to be in their situation. Who's the fortunate one? Who's the one you'd be envious of? The one whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sins have been covered up by God so no one can see them anymore. They're real, but they're no longer counted. The blessed people are not the good people who've tried hard and maybe scraped close to doing all that's required. No, they're bad people God has forgiven, whose slate he's wiped completely clean. And let me tell you something, David should know. Because he was guilty of adultery and murder. He was not the, the, the perfect king that some people thought he should have been and maybe thought he was. No, we know he wasn't like that. He says, who would you rather be? The person who tries really hard to be good or the person who totally, permanently, completely has been forgiven by God? David says, I'd much prefer to be the second. And so would I much prefer to be the second. But you might raise an objection, and Paul imagines that you do in verse 9, and say, come on, it's not as simple as that, is it? I mean, think about Abram, Abraham. He had to obey, didn't he? He had to get circumcised. And Paul says, timing is everything. Verse 10, under what circumstances was it credited? Under what circumstances was Abraham's faith credited as righteousness? Was it after he was circumcised or before? No, it was after, wasn't it? It was in Genesis 17, 20 to 30 years after he was made righteous. And so the answer is pretty clear, isn't it? Circumcision didn't justify him. He didn't need to be circumcised in order to be justified. It was just a sign. Now I've got a wedding ring on. It's a sign of my marriage. But it's not my marriage. I could throw the wedding ring out and I'd still be married. I hope. (laughs) That's how Rosemary responds, doesn't it? Uh, I actually lost my wedding ring for, uh, for about a year. Did that make me unmarried? No. If in the wedding service we didn't exchange rings, would that make me unmarried? No. It's just a sign. Well, that's what circumcision is. If you've never been circumcised, don't worry. Abraham wasn't either for 30 years or so, but he was still righteous with God. You've never been baptised? Well, neither was Abraham. Now, he was circumcised simply because he trusted God. It was by faith alone. You might come back again and say, but come on, what about the law? God gave Israel the law, didn't he? And he said you had to keep the law. Well, in 13 to 17, he discusses that. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, 
Faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. So imagine I, I bring law into it. Imagine I say to you, if you do all your study, I will give you $1,000 next week. Okay, there's some law. If you do it, the law is you've got to do all your study, I'll give you $1,000. Okay, so imagine that in the next week or so. You don't do all that you're meant to do. What happens to the promise? It just sort of disappears into thin air, doesn't it? It's no longer relevant. You don't even know whether it's worth anything. You don't know whether I'd keep my promise because you've stuffed it. That's how law works, and that's what he says. Those who depend on the law, faith means nothing, and the promise becomes worthless because the law brings wrath. It brings the judgment of God. What if I'd say to you, without anything about study, I'd just say to you, next week I'll give you $1,000. Now, all you've got is a promise then, haven't you? And that's a very different dynamic. It's pure grace, if I meant it. It doesn't demand anything from you. I've just said to you, I'll give you $1,000. You can't obey that promise, can you? You can't earn that promise. The only response you can make is to trust the promise. Trust that I'll give you $1,000 or not. In fact, if I make a promise like that, you mustn't try and earn it. You might think, oh, Tim's just trying to manipulate me. I wonder what he really wants me to do. I, I know. He probably wants me to study, so I'll go and study hard and then I'll earn the $1,000. That, that just demolishes the promise, doesn't it? It actually says you don't trust my promise. It changes it to something different. But God to Abraham made these unconditional promises. The question was simply, would he believe them or not? And God does that for us. He promises us forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life, resurrection to eternal life. And he doesn't make that conditional. If you get circumcised, if you pass all your exams, if you do all your study, if you go to church at least 10 times in the next two months. He just makes promises. Will you trust his promise or not? Now, when you do trust the promise, it makes a difference. If I say, I'll give you $1,000 next week. If you really believe my promise, what are you likely to do in the next week? Well, you'll probably max out your credit card, won't you? You can't start spending that money knowing that it's going to come from me and you'll be able to pay it all off. You might even hang around me a little bit next week just waiting for me to get it out of my wallet and give it to you. It will affect your behaviour, but the promise isn't dependent on your behaviour. So what is Christian faith? Well, Abraham is the model of the real thing. We've started to see already it's not some sort of irrational leap in the dark like Indiana Jones. But it's believing the promises of God. And as you believe the promises of God, you trust God who makes the promises. And there's three things that come out in this last section. The first thing is, the faith is in God. The object of faith is critical. That's true in all of life. The chair you're sitting at the moment, the chair you're sitting on, you are having faith in it. And what matters is not your faith, but whether the chair will hold you up. You sit on a dodgy chair, it doesn't matter how much faith you've got, you'll be on the floor, won't you? Well, this is about faith in God. In verse 17, he says, As it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's our father inside of God, in whom he believed, in whom he had faith. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Verse 21, it says, He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is, he had trust in God that he had the power and the will to keep his promise, that he meant it and he could do it, therefore it was going to happen. 
God made Abraham a promise that he would be a dad. And so believing the promise is believing that God could do it. And that's why verse 17 talks about bringing life from death, because he looked at his own body, verse 19, and he was as good as dead. He was about 100 years old. He still didn't have a child. And in case you don't realise it, there's sort of physical feats you have to go through to become a dad. If you don't understand that, go home and ask your dad. He'll, he'll explain it. His body was as good as dead, and his wife Sarah, her body was as good as dead too. She'd, she'd been barren all her life. Now, this was actually a pretty sensitive issue for Abraham. Do you know what his name means, Abram? Abraham means father, dad. You know, imagine walking up to Abram saying, Hi, my name's Tim, what's your name? He says, My name's Dad. Oh, how many kids you got? None. <laughs> Except it got worse than that because God changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham means father of many. You got lots of kids. You know, imagine you meet him in the, in, in the um, retirement village, in the, in the nursing home. There he is in his Zimmer frame, and you recognize him and say, Ah, oh, Abram, good to see you again. He says, Sorry, my name's changed actually. So that's Abraham now. Big daddy, father of many. And you say, how many kids you got now? Still none. (laughs) See, it's either a joke or it's a promise. And Abraham rightly understood because of everything else God said, it was a promise. A promise that he would have a child one day. And he trusted God would do it. God took him out to show the stars. He says, you'll have that many offspring, generations to come. And he believed God. Secondly, it's rational. Notice verse 21, the language. He was fully persuaded. It was based on what he knew about God. The God who created this universe can bring life out of death, can't he? The God who created the whole thing, knit you together in your mother's womb. He can give you a child when you're 100 years old. There was some counter evidence that that's true. He looked at his own body and thought, it's pretty much dead. Looked at his wife and said, she's pretty much dead. It's hard to believe, but he weighed up the evidence. God, the creator, makes a promise that he'll give him a son. His own body, his wife's body. He says, which one, which one is more reliable? And he was fully persuaded that God could do what he promised. That God who created everything, who'd kept his promises so far to Abram in keeping him alive this long, keeping his wife alive through tribulations, he would keep his promise it was very rational. It's a, the closest equipment I can think of is aeroplanes. So uh, if you catch planes, you've probably been through this experience a bit. You know when you get on a plane and, and, and as you walk onto it, you, you sort of look at that long steel or aluminium tube, whatever it is. You look at the heavy motors on the side. You see them loading up all the luggage and all the people onto it. And intuitively you think, this thing cannot fly. But if you're an engineer like me, you can go into all the calculations, can't you? You work out how the aerodynamics actually can lift it up and can lift that much weight. And you can watch a few other planes take off and you can see, yeah, it it actually works. See, it's reasonable in the light of all the evidence to believe that a plane can fly. It's rational. But there is a slight hiccup. See, it's not really faith in the way the Bible talks about it till you get on the plane. Just to sit in the terminal and say, yeah, I believe that can fly is not trusting the plane. It's not until you get in it that you're trusting the plane. And when you get in it, and it takes off, and it flies to Melbourne, and you get to Melbourne, and somebody says, oh, how did you get here? I presume you don't say, my faith got me here. You say, the plane got me here, don't you? 
Because faith is not something that gets you anywhere. It just gets you into the right place in relationship to the right thing that can get you there. And so it is with God and his promises. So it is with Jesus. Faith is essential. But it's what you've got your faith in that matters. It doesn't matter much how much or how little you've got. It's what it's in. Is it in Jesus and God's provision, God's solution, or is it in me? A Christian faith is not a leap in the dark. It's not close your eyes, cross your fingers. I hope something's going to work. No, Abram didn't throw away his faith through wavering doubt. He didn't get off the plane. Faith is staying on the plane, to use the analogy. And his faith was strengthened. If you know the story of Abraham, there were lots of doubts and inconsistencies, yet he clung to those promises of God through thick and thin. It was his bedrock. Christian faith is like that. It believes the promises of God that will be resurrected. Irrational, though, because God has raised Jesus to life already. That I'll be forgiven and made right with God? Irrational, no, because Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin. And in the last few verses, he says, well, that's the same for us. The deal Abraham was on is exactly the same we're on. It's not that there's a different God of the Old Testament and New Testament. It's not that the Old Testament God is somehow this angry beast and he suddenly becomes nice nice and cuddly with Jesus. No, it's the same God all the way through and the same deal is on the table all the way through. There's the old deal that we're born into. I want God to judge me by what I've done. I want to earn my place with God. And to everybody who's ever lived, that's the deal we're born into. That's the deal we choose. But God has put a new deal on the table that was true for Abraham and for us. It's earned through Jesus, his death and resurrection. And faith is trusting God, in particular his promise in verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. If we trust Jesus, we're counted righteous. So here's the deal. Do you see it? Justification means to be totally forgiven and counted righteous by God with God, accepted. And that is by grace alone through faith alone. That's what verses 4 and 5 are saying, isn't it? The old deal, you work for it, you earn it. The new deal, the one who does not work, doesn't try and earn anything with God, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly. Their trust is credited as righteousness. Very straightforward. Don't work at winning God's approval and acceptance. Simply trust him to forgive you, warts and all, to keep his promise, not to count your sins against you. You might say that feels a bit risky. You know, maybe God will see some things I've done and just sort of keep them in the back cupboard to bring them out on the last day, the day of judgment. Maybe God will forget his promise to wipe my slate clean and I'll be exposed in the judgment. Maybe I need to do something myself to try and be as good as I can to earn his favour and forgiveness. So I can say to God... Look at my life. I, I tried really hard. Look at my actions. Look at my performance. But God says, no, that's hopeless. Look at Jesus. That's your only hope, what he's done for you. I think the temptation is to say, yeah, I, I love what Jesus has done, but I, I want to try and improve my chances. I want to tip the scales. I want to now go to church. I'll read my Bible lots and pray lots. I'll be a decent person. You know what that's like? That's like a person sitting in the plane. And as the plane accelerates down the runway, they're going like this. <laughs> as if somehow their flapping will help the plane fly. Now, if you saw somebody doing that, what would you say? Don't be dumb. <laughs> it's dangerous to everybody around you. You don't need to do it. It means you're not trusting the plane. 
Don't be dull. Trust Jesus. Let me finish there. The question I think for you is, is that you? Have you moved from the old deal to the new deal? Have you come to see this incredible promise from God? Forgiveness, total forgiveness through the death of Jesus. The promise of resurrection to eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus. Have you said, that's, that's what I'm going to trust? Not myself, not what I could do, have done, but what he's done. That's what it means to be a Christian. That is the new deal that God offers all of humanity. No matter who you are, no matter how bad or good your record has been, whether you've been immoral or immoral, religious or irreligious, that's the deal on the table. Have you taken it? Or are you still resisting? Thank you.